I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Clayton J. Butler joins us to discuss his new book, True Blue, White Unionists in the Deep South During the Civil War and Reconstruction. Believe it or not, there were elements in the South, even the Deep South, that supported the North during the American Civil War and their reasons for doing so may surprise you. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Clayton J. Butler, author of True Blue, White Unionists in the Deep South During the Civil War and Reconstruction. It's sure to give you a different perspective on the American Civil War and the Reconstruction period that followed. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very interested uh, to be speaking with, Clayton J. Butler, author of True Blue, White Unionists in the Deep South During the Civil War and Reconstruction. I think this is the first episode I've done on the Civil War, and I think it's an important topic uh, because a lot of people, their knowledge of the Civil War sort of stops at the war itself. But your book uh, focuses on not only a very specific aspect of the Civil War, these white unionists uh, who stayed loyal to the U.S. rather than than the Confederacy, but also gets into what happened to them after the Civil War. And a lot of times our knowledge about the Civil War seems to stop at the end of the war, whereas Reconstruction needs to be understood as well. Uh, We'll get into all of that during the course of our conversation. Uh, But if you could, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, how this book came about True Blue White Unionists in the Deep South During the Civil War and Reconstruction. Great. And thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, 
I uh, got my PhD at uh, the University of Virginia in 2020. Uh, my advisors were Gary Gallagher, Elizabeth Barron, and Caroline Janey, um, who came in uh, about halfway through my, the project. She, Gary Gallagher retired and, and Janey came in and, and took a job. So I was very lucky to sort of benefit from both of their perspectives and their, their expertise and guidance. Um, and uh, yeah, so I the I defended my dissertation in March 2020. Actually, I was like was one of the first zooms I ever did. Uh, was my dissertation defense uh, was 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 that that stage, and uh, I pitched the book to LSU later that summer. Uh, and the book came out uh, in the spring of 2022. Um, you know, coming up on a, coming up approaching a year uh, anniversary of that. Um, and when I entered graduate school, when I entered the history program here at UVA, I, I still live in Charlottesville, by the way. Um, I knew I was always I've always been interested in the Civil War uh, as a field. I've always been interested in Southern history and Southern culture. I think those two things are are not are, are related in a, in a big way, uh, as uh, sort of understandably. And uh, I've also always been interested in the notion of dissent, social dissent, what allows somebody or what causes somebody uh, to sort of go against the grain of their society to say to to say not in my name, you know, that kind of a, a disposition and attitude, I think, historically is is really fascinating. And I think one that we can all sort of um, understand as as worth investigating. And uh, and I have always found that compelling. So I found that, you know, I figured that uh, to to research those in the deep South and in the heart of the Confederacy who went against, uh, who uh, against the formation of the Confederacy maintained this stubborn, unbroken loyalty to the United States. Yeah, I, I was going to say real quick, it's interesting because I think, I think maybe lay people don't even realize that there were, you know, yeah. union loyalists in the South. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Part of that has to do with the prevalence of the lost cause ideology and lost cause ideology is is a sort of way of remembering the civil war a strain of memory that emphasizes among other things um uh, a, a notion of a the the uh, the uniform support of the white south for the confederacy um that there was this like full buy-in on the part of the white population of the confederate states especially and and when you do hear about unionism or or white anti-confederate activity even when you do hear about it, it's almost always in Missouri, it's bushwhacking, it's in Appalachia, it's in, you know, what became West Virginia. Um, you know, people who might not know that much about the Civil War still know that, you know, Virginia was partitioned as a result of the war due to that that stubborn unionist um, contingent in the western part of the state. But I was really interested in, you know, were there any unionists in the cotton south in the deep south your alabama mississippi louisiana uh the the real uh the the heart the heartland of the confederacy and i think for a very long time people the prevalence of the lost cause ideology caused people to not even look for them to assume that they had not existed um and i should say i mean i i, I should i should add here it's not as though there's this big cover-up going on but i mean they were a very small minority of people this is not like um you know, some uh, retroactive or retrospective sort of um, alteration of the historical record that's going on necessarily. It's just there's such a small minority that it was easy to forget that they were there at all. Uh, but they were. And and they had 
as you said, uh, perhaps a more important role in the post-war period than in the war itself, uh, which I also found very interesting in my research. So one thing I wanted to get into, and this is what I was interested in, and I, I know it's not like a huge portion of your book necessarily, uh, but when we talk about uh, these white unionists in the South, and particularly the Deep South, uh, people would wonder, well, like, why? What, why would they go against the Confederacy? Uh, wouldn't they have strong feelings about wanting to defend the Southern homeland? Uh, but there is this issue that comes into play uh, where you have people in the South that aren't really benefiting necessarily uh, materially or economically from the sort of plantation aristocracy. So could you talk about the role that may play uh, in, you know, why there are these uh, unconditional unionists? Yeah, uh, of course. Um, so as we all know, as the evidence compels us to to acknowledge the heart, the, the mainspring of secession and the raison d'etre, basically, of the Confederacy is defense of slavery. Um, they view the seceding states, the people who were behind the Confederate national project, uh, viewed the election of Lincoln, uh, who at, at the head of a party that was committed to the eventual, not necessarily the immediate, but the eventual destruction of slavery. That is at the heart of the Republican Party's um, sort of mission statement. Uh, when it's founded in the 1850s, they view this as an existential threat uh, to their way of life. And the way of life is actually, I'm utilizing this sort of euphemism there. When they say way of life, they mean slavery as an institution, not only one that has made the, the region extremely wealthy, uh, the, the, the Confederate states were one of the wealthiest uh, on their own, had one of the largest GDPs in the world at that stage. But Slavery in an it had they had that an economic investment which was very very powerful. It was the single single largest investment of capital after land was in enslaved people uh, in the Confederacy. But it also uh, and this speaks to why non-slaveholding Southerners would support the Confederacy. Um, it also was very important to white Southerners as a system of social control for the four million out of nine million people who resided in the Confederate states who were enslaved. And there was this uh, powerful and not irrational fear of what emancipation would mean for the white population if it were to be, if it were to happen. It was very, very difficult, if not impossible, for most white Southerners to envision emancipation as not being accompanied by this retributive bloodbath because they knew um, on some level that, they, that they, these people did not want to be enslaved. And that if they were had been enslaved, how would they react? How would they, what would their attitude be towards their enslavers? And it would not be kind. And so they were tremendously fearful of what emancipation would mean for them uh, in terms of the, the, the just the, the social consequences of that. The, and um, so when you have people in the, in the South, in the, in the future Confederacy, the Confederacy, who don't have the same economic investment in slavery, uh, who aren't part of that plantation belt of, of the Mississippi River Valley or the Black Belts of Alabama, and who don't have that demographic imperative where they're living in areas where they are outnumbered by enslaved people, where people are being held in bondage by force, by this minority, you don't have that same sense of, of urgency and, and, you know, I will defend this institution to the death kind of an attitude that 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 is prevalent throughout so much of the confederacy and so they 
don't have this real push. Uh, the Confederacy doesn't have that same uh, necessity, feeling of necessity to them. That's why, you know, in Western Virginia, the thing that makes Western Virginia so profoundly unionist is they don't have the same, nearly the same degree of, of uh, uh, investment in the slave economy, of, of uh demographics. Uh, the same thing is true in East Tennessee, which has a large genius population in Missouri and Kentucky, the places where essentially as the rate of slaveholding goes down, the rate of unionism goes up. I mean, this is just, this is not the only explanation. It can be in some ways uh, an overly simplistic and facile explanation for what causes somebody to have a national allegiance one way or the other, but there is an undeniable correlation between those two things. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds like uh, I think the term you use in the book is that there was a grain of truth in, yeah. you know, uh, why some unionists uh, would be pro-union uh, because of, I, I guess, uh, class resentment. Right. I mean, I, did, and were there like legitimate reasons to have that class resentment for people that are unfamiliar with this topic? Yeah. Um, slave ownership gave um bestowed on um sort of what was seen as this unearned political power not only did it make you richer based off of uncompensated labor um that you know somebody uh, a poor white person in alabama just simply cannot compete with uh somebody who owns their labor force and doesn't compensate them and can work them to death if they if they so choose economically that's it's an almost impossible situation to be faced with uh, and so there's great resentment there of the planter class among the non-slaveholding class. Uh, but it also get, it also bestows this political power that enables um, all kinds of unfair advantages to accrue to the slaveholding class. Now, I mean, and this is true uh, nationally as well. This is one of the main reasons why Northerners and non-slaveholding Northerners are deeply resentful of slaveholding Southerners uh, and the political situation uh, that they the antebellum U.S. operated under. If we if we acknowledge that most Americans, white Americans, I should say, in the 19th century are by any modern standard deeply racist people, and have no real love lost for enslaved people for African Americans, that they they're not that their their critique of slavery is not entirely based or, or in some ways not at all based on sympathy for the enslaved. One way to think about it that I think is is very helpful is we think of the three-fifths compromise, right? When we talk about um, three-fifths compromise, one of those numbers that just jumps out at us as, as deeply unfair because it counts an enslaved person for purposes of representation as three-fifths of a person. You're literally cutting their humanity in half. And that's why the three-fifths compromise is so jarring to our modern uh, sensibility. But if you if you under if you acknowledge that that um, say, you know, white Northern citizens really didn't care about the, the citizenship rights of enslaved people. What they're mad about is not that they're, that enslaved person is three fifths of a person for representation, but that a person who owns a slave is eight fifths. And that right. is, they're, they're almost like, um, it's almost like they, they, I mean, I've heard people call the plantation class, um, like, almost oligarchic in a way, or that's how maybe these pro-unionists uh, that didn't necessarily care about slavery, but disliked the plantation aristocracy would have looked like them as almost like an oligarchy. That's exactly right. This is the sort of, this is the attitude that Andrew Johnson, uh, who in many ways embodies the political 
um, ideology of many of these deep South unionists, that he is somebody who has a has a deep resentment towards both slavery and enslaved people, has no love lost for enslaved people. Almost, uh, you know, it, it, again, it can be hard for us to understand how you can be against slavery but not care about enslaved people. But it's the oligarchical power that this gave a certain class of white people that so many other white people were deeply resentful of. Now, what's interesting is uh, you also cover unionists that thought that the the, the Confederacy was actually a threat uh, to the institution of slavery, which is why they ended up supporting the union. Uh, could you delve into that a little bit uh, for people that may be confused by it? Yeah, no, of course. Um, essentially, there was also, in addition to this this horror, more subsistence farming class of, of unionists um, who did not own slaves. There was also a very small, it really comes down to some individual cases really of slaveholding men um, in, in Louisiana, um, in, in these states who quite rightly realized that this is going, that the Confederate experiment is going to backfire and that far from protecting slavery, it's actually going to accelerate the demise of slavery. This is, they essentially said, "Look, uh, and, they, and they and they they also they they point to uh, this. A lot of it is before Lincoln says this, but Lincoln, even in his inaugural, he says, "Look, even if I had the inclination to eliminate slavery by fiat, you know, if I, which I don't, I don't have the power to do it, you know. And, and these the the Constitution has to be amended. They, they they have to pass national legislation to 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 unilaterally abolish slavery." And these guys who own a lot of slaves in Louisiana, Tolliver and James Madison Wells, are saying, look, like, let, let's let the government try something first before we make this incredibly rash decision. Because if we enter into an open rebellion, then they can. Then they have their pretext to abolish slavery, which is, of course, exactly what happens in 1863 um, with the Emancipation Proclamation. But these guys quite, real, quite uh, perceptively understand that this revolution is going to get ahead of them and is going to essentially defeat the purpose that it was uh, initiated um, to, to defeat. And, and actually, you see this, this conservative argument against secession um, all over the South in, in the states that are much more ambivalent about leaving, in Virginia, Tennessee, Arkansas, these states that don't leave until uh, April of 61, as opposed to January, like the earlier states. They're all saying, look, this is slavery is protected under the United States Constitution right now. And if we eliminate our, if we take ourselves out of the Constitution, we take ourselves out of the Union, that no longer will apply and will actually defeat our own purpose here. You know, right now, an enslaved person has to get to Canada to to, to get away from the fugitive slave law and to and to get away from the, the government um protecting our, our property rights. If we leave the Confederacy, or if we leave the United States, Canada is all of a sudden in Ohio and and Pennsylvania, and it makes our lives that much more difficult. So there were some unionists who were against secession and the and the formation of the Confederacy because they they essentially saw the writing on the wall. I, I was going to say I'm glad you mentioned um, James Madison Wells because I believe he was uh, the 20th governor of Louisiana during Reconstruction and also. Uh, he owned, um, he was a large slaveholder. I mean, he, he had a number of plantations. Yes. 
Wells is a, is a really, really fascinating character, um, an absolutely unconditional unionist who opposes uh, secession and the Confederacy because he is worried that it will backfire, that it will cause him to lose all his property, which is exactly what happens. He gets his house burned down in 1864 by the Union armies. But uh, when the Union army occupies uh, New Orleans and Louisiana, um, he is is well known as as a unionist and as a prominent figure, public figure. And so on the back of this reputation as an unconditional unionist um, and a public figure, he becomes a lieutenant governor of the state in 1864. And when the governor, who's Michael Hong, becomes a senator, U.S. senator, uh, early in 65, Wells becomes the governor of Louisiana. And he is the governor of Louisiana when the war ends. Um, and uh, what happens is that Wells is this unconditional unionist, but he is a socially extremely conservative man. And he has no uh, no interest in the welfare of African-American people. He is basically upset because he was proved right that he, he lost all his enslaved property during the war. And he, he once he's the governor of, of, of Louisiana during Reconstruction, he, he supports the Black Codes. He opposes um, any rights for, for recently emancipated people to the point that this unionist governor is after the war a de facto confederate in his social views and it creates this very awkward situation um in the state um after after the war because he the union is saved which is the only thing he really cared about um and he he wants to get things as back back to the status quo antebellum in terms of the social uh social situation um you know african-americans on plantations you know, working uh, the cotton economy um, as soon as possible. That's the only thing he cares about. It's really, that's really interesting in light of, I believe during the Civil War, dur during the war itself, I think he was arrested by Confederate officials for uh, being a Union sympathizer. But then afterwards, you know, he's really trying to sort of reassert uh, the Confederate values. Yes. Uh, he, you know, everything bar technical enslavement uh he's he's fine with he has no he you know he eventually he he actually has is forced in, in a political uh way to come around to the to the possibility of black suffrage but he has to be dragged to that kicking and screaming after uh, he makes this sort of you know he he, he tries to appeal to to former confederates say look like on many things we are you know, remember before the war when I was a large slave owner and you were a large slave owner? Like, we, we should just get back to that. We were we saw eye to eye on a lot of stuff, but they don't trust him. The former Confederates do not trust this guy. Uh, and so they they make him uh, largely irrelevant. And uh, it's it's a sort of a long story. And uh, I don't know if we have time to get into that, all the machinations of that. But, yes, he is. Uh, he is is a funny combination of unconditional unionist and and really in many ways has very typical confederate social views so it's interesting we've mentioned this term unconditional unionist uh, a few times and i think it's good to unpack that term for people that are unfamiliar what do we mean by an unconditional humanist uh, uh, unconditional unionist and i guess uh, what happens when the war really gets rolling because 
I, I think there were a lot of people in the South or, or a more substantial number than these unconditional unionists that thought, oh, th- this is bad. We should stay with the union. But as time went on, they, they sort of uh, went in the other direction, said, well, I have to support the Confederacy. These unconditional unionists don't really waver in their views. Yeah, there is a fundamental distinction that needs to be made between those who tried to maintain some sort of neutrality. You know, you might oppose the Confederacy, but you don't sort of uh, have this sort of, uh, as I said, you know, unconditional, unbroken loyalty to the United States. You may want to just stay out of the war as much as as is possible. And a lot of a lot of people tried to maintain a, a stance of neutrality uh, who, if they weren't really all in on the Confederate um, nation building projects, the, the secession and the war. But what happens um, is, that, that really is sort of makes everything so it cards on the table time is, is the draft. Uh, the Confederacy institutes a draft in April 62, the, the United States a little bit after that. But that makes neutrality no longer a tenable position. You had to choose. And for most um, people living in the in the Deep South, uh, by the time the draft is instituted in the Confederacy, there there's no union to run to. There's no union to enlist in. Um, so they either have to go into hiding, uh, really go underground in a, a literal sense, um, or or enlist in the Confederate military or face imprisonment. Um, so unconditional unionists are those who never supported the formation of the Confederacy and did not even maintain a posture of neutrality, maintain an unbroken, asserted an unbroken citizenship of the United States. Um, and those, and, and, and I, and what made my, because it can be very difficult to, to determine uh, national loyalty because there's different kinds of loyalty. There's neutrality, there's state loyalty. What I tried to do, because these things can be very ambiguous, especially at, at a distance of 150 years, is I used as my jumping off point those that enlisted men uh, that enlisted in the army, because that uh, was an unambiguous declaration of of United States allegiance. Um, you know, the draft uh, doesn't apply uh, in in these seceded states, and so if you if you're volunteering for the Union Army uh, as a resident, a white resident of Alabama or Louisiana, that is. That's as close to an unconditional statement of unconditional unionism as as you can hope for, and that's what I used as my job, jumping off point. You know, not just these men who are enlisting, but what are the communities they're coming out of? Um, what's prompting them to make this this decision? So we mentioned earlier uh, that class resentments or, or fear of uh, a landed aristocracy being sort of oligarchic with regards to its political power. Uh, could play a role in in maybe uh, pro-union sentiments. Uh, but I think you go farther than that. You're saying that it's not just opposition that drove these men to embrace unconditional unionism. So what else would drive unionism, um, a, a sort of positive unionism rather than a unionism based on opposition? Right. I think that's a, I think that's well put. And I think that's very important to understand people don't tend to, uh, to go to these lengths just out of a sort of negative politics of opposition. Um, most white unionists in the deep South subscribed to a unionism that was basically identical to that of most white northerners. Um, and unionism, the union as a cause, 
is is the thing that is very can be very difficult for us to grasp in the 21st century, but was the single most important motivating cause for a Union soldier in the Civil War. And what I mean when I say that is for those of us who were born in the 20th century, it's almost impossible for us to access the mental universe that these people lived in where the United States was not the global power, where American quote unquote values of democracy of the, these sorts of things were were normative in the world and had been vindicated by you know a hundred years of economic, political, military success uh, that the 20th century um, showed of the United States. Um, the United States in in the middle of the 19th century is on its way, but is still marginal. It's not uh, the idea of the Union meaning the political, economic, and religious freedom that that offered to white men uh, was still unusual in the world um, and was still what the, the motivating factor of most white, of the vast majority of, of Union soldiers. And when I say that, I mean political freedom in the sense of the ability to vote, because if you were a white man in the mid-19th century, you had the franchise, regardless of whether you owned property or not. Uh, economic freedom in the sense that you are not tied to the land. You have the ability to make a contract. You have the ability to move out west if you if you if you want to make a go of it. There's a, an economic freedom um, that is is much greater and more pronounced than was available anywhere in, in Europe at the time, really. And the religious freedom, um, which again can be we can we can tend to take for granted, but the ability to worship freely uh, in the in the mid nineteenth century was still something that was very important. That's why there's massive Catholic immigration uh, to the United States. Um, you know, German, Irish, especially in the mid nineteenth century. So you have this political, economic, and religious freedom that is offered by the Union, and you also. Um, in, in, in 1861, you have less than less than 15 years earlier, you had had a series of liberal revolutions or liberal uprisings in Europe crushed by the, the conservative elements, people seeking a constitutional uh, reforms, um, crushed out by aristocratic conservative movements. And so this idea that that these sorts of this sort of government, this sort of level of individual freedom uh, was not inevitable was not something to be taken for granted and that the union um, was the thing that embodied that and allowed that to be perpetuated and strengthened uh, was in and of itself the cause that, that most union soldiers were fighting for. And so most white Southern unionists were no different in that respect. They, they, they valued those things about the union um, and were, and, you know, uh, allied themselves to it um, explicitly. Who uh, that you talk about in the book do you think best maybe represents that sentiment uh, and reasoning for supporting unionism? Because I know uh, you cover a lot of characters, including um, William Frederick Bradford, who I want to talk about a little bit later because his story is very interesting. But in terms of sort of this positive reasoning for pro-unionism. Is there anyone in the book that really exemplifies that? In some ways, it's the um, the, the common soldiers of the first Alabama who uh, who embody that, that use that language that's so recognizable to mid-19th century white Americans, union soldiers. 
when they talk about um, their um, their their family memory of the revolution, their their elements um, of 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 these sorts of the immigrants to say who who enlist in the first Louisiana, for example, who talk about how you know um, about about these elements of the the choice that they're making, the the free the liberty they have to do so. I also will say that um, there's the, there's a character, a character, a real person named Jeremiah Clemens, who had been a Democratic senator from Alabama and is an outspoken unionist um, during the secession crisis. And then uh, he he's actually a, a relative of um, Samuel Clemens in Missouri, uh, you know, Mark, who becomes Mark Twain. Uh, and, and Jeremiah Clemens starts to correspond with members of the Lincoln administration because the Lincoln administration is trying to take the temperature of these unionists in the deep South. They, he, they're very keen to, to know what they're thinking, what they're, how they're reacting to, to the administration's uh, policy moves and et cetera. And towards the end of the war, uh, Clemens writes a letter to Lincoln and he says, he he's explaining why these white unionists in the deep South who, you know, again, are, are ambivalent about slavery. They're not, that they might be against it as an institution, but they wouldn't have, you know, been eager to abolish it. For example, in 1860, why they accept emancipation as the war is going on, and Clemens says, you know, let me see slavery abolished throughout the Union, so that nothing will remain to stir up another civil war, and I will die contented. So he here's here's again a, a, a contemporary mid 19th century american who understands very clearly that the thing that caused secession was slavery and that the reason one of the good reasons for emancipation is to say nothing of the justice due to enslaved people if you eliminate slavery you eliminate the root cause of the civil war and so you may, you maintain uh, a safeguard in for the perpetuity of the union moving forward um, and that to him is he is values union above the system of slavery, above the property rights, above the demographic sort of quote unquote threat of emancipated people. He the union is is the is is the uh, sin, I don't want to use that Latin, you know is is the most fundamental thing to him. Um, and I think that that kind of gets at the heart of. Uh, one of the main issues of understanding 19th century, you know, the Civil War is that if people weren't fighting to end slavery, what were they fighting for? Uh, they were fighting to end slavery in order to save the Union. The Union was what was behind that for, for many people as well. So I wanted to talk about a few of the specific people that come up in the book. Um, you sort of have a family come up in the book, uh, the Taliaferro family. I don't know if I'm yeah, mispronouncing, it, uh, but one of them was actually uh, Sherman's loyal pupil at a uh, Louisiana State Military Academy. Let, let's talk about that. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's actually pronounced Tolliver, uh, believe it or not. It's a funny old, uh, it's a very, it's a, it's a Southern name. Uh, there's a funny, there's a funny history to it where it's, it's obviously it's an Italian name originally, and this is Italian merchants who migrated to England in like the 17th century or even the 16th century. And then a Tolliver uh, moved, you know, came to Virginia uh, in the 17th century or 18th century. And uh, eventually one of those Virginia Tollivers uh, migrated down to Louisiana. And that's this unionist family, the Tollivers. 
uh, Talia Farrow's, uh, but the T in Booker T. Washington is Tolliver. It's in a very old uh, Virginia name. And uh, there was a Confederate general, Tolliver, from Virginia as well. But to get back to the point, uh, this Tolliver is, is one of these slave-holding unionists. He is a nationalist before the war, and he understands that, and her, he believes strongly that uh, civil war secession will accomplish the reverse of its intention, that it will have the result of in, in the abolition of slavery rather than its pr protection. And so he opposes secession on those grounds. He submits a formal protest against secession. He is a delegate to the Louisiana Session, Secession Convention and submits a formal protest against it. And this is the nature of his, his objection. I should mention his name is James G. Tolliver. This is the patriarch in Louisiana of this, this unionist family. And his youngest son, he actually names all, he's a Whig before the war, is a sort of funny thing. He names all his children uh, after prominent Whigs. One of his sons, his name is John Quincy Adams Tolliver. He's, there's another, is John, Daniel Webster Tolliver. And his youngest son is a guy is named Henry Bullard Tolliver. And a lot of people know, uh, as you just mentioned, that when the war starts, uh, General Sherman is actually running the Louisiana State Military Academy um, in, in well, it's near Baton Rouge. And um, he, has about, he has about 100 pupils or so. And of those pupils, one of them stays loyal to the Union, and that's Henry Bullard Tolliver. Um, he has to go, like James Madison Wells, I mentioned before, he has to go into hiding for that period between secession and the arrival of Union forces. But then when he does eventually, when the Union forces do show up, Tolliver makes his way down to New Orleans, enlists in the 1st Louisiana Union Cavalry, and serves to the end of the war. Uh, another of his brothers, um, Robert Tolliver, uh, is, is a delegate to the 1864 uh nominating convention where he casts one of Louisiana's votes for, for Lincoln. And after the war, uh, James G. Tolliver, this patriarch, the slaveholder who opposed secession because he didn't want to lose his enslaved property, actually ends up uh, the president of the constitutional convention that grants black men the franchise in Louisiana. This is eight years later. This is an unbelievable shift that has occurred in, in, in state politics. And Tolliver has gone this incredible transformation uh, from a slaveholding, you know, planter lawyer to the president of the Radical Convention of 1868. And uh, Henry B. Tolliver, uh, the Sherman's loyal pupil, uh, only the only one. Uh, and you think he'd be more famous, you know? He's got there's only one of them, and, he, and nobody. I mean, he lives until uh, till 1920 uh, when he passes away, uh, still living in Louisiana. Uh, Henry B. Tolliver during the, what, the Harding administration, for a sense of perspective there. So there were a few more characters I wanted to get into before uh, delving into maybe some of the bigger picture issues, and especially the Reconstruction. Uh, one is a, a character with a great name. Um, I keep saying character, but you're right. They are, these were real know, people. They are characters, but they are real people. And right. it's, it's not lose <laughs> well, this one has this one has the a name that reminds me of a character from like an older novel or something. Uh, I I think you know who I'm going to say, Algernon uh, Badger. Sydney. <laughs> Algernon Sidney Badger. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he is. Badger is is also uh, a member of the First Louisiana Cavalry. He rises up um, 
he he's a, a captain and ends up the in, in command of the regiment by the end of the war. Uh, Badger. Um, I think Algernon Sydney, I should know this actually, but I think Algernon Sydney was some like 18th century English Enlightenment figure. People love to name their children in the 19th century like a full name as the first and middle name. You know what I mean? Like Benjamin Butler, for example, the, uh, you know, his name is Benjamin Franklin Butler. You know, they, they love to do stuff like that. Anyway, Algernon Sidney Badger enlists in the Louisiana Cavalry, rises through the ranks. Um, uh, he features prominently because his papers um, are still at Tulane, and I got to look at those. He wrote to his father over the course of the war, and he settles in Louisiana in New Orleans after the war and eventually ends up as part of the Metropolitan Police Force, um, which was this organization started by the Reconstruction Governor uh, Henry Clay Warmouth. Uh, because the old police force had been solidly democratic, uh, a sort of all white. Um, and of course, when we say democratic in the 19th century, that is the more conservative, the white man's party. Uh, Warmoth wants to create this, this state police force that can exist um, basically to protect black people and protect unionists and, and not do the, the democratic party's sort of white supremacist bidding. Uh, and and Badger, these this guy who is in the former Union Louisiana soldier, is naturally one of the a great candidate to be tapped for a leadership uh, role in this organization. Uh, he's a great candidate to be tapped for for that leadership role because he has is proven uh, in the state uh, as a, as a Union soldier. Um, so he's you know uh, not somebody who's coming in necessarily from the outside. Somebody who's already embedded in the state uh, during the war. And um, yeah, and he and he, one of the great ironies of 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 the the post war period is that he ends up serving directly next to uh, James Longstreet, who also ends up in the the Metropolitan Police. James Longstreet, for for those who don't know, maybe is one of the titans of Confederate military history. One of the great Confederate generals, Lee's right hand man throughout the war. Um, but after the war. Uh, Longstreet um, moves to New Orleans and becomes a Republican. He's the most, he's by far the most prominent former Confederate uh, to become a Republican after the war and to, to, to go over to the um, quote unquote radical side. And Badger and, and Longstreet, you know, this little uh, Badger, this captain of this little dinky Union regiment, and Longstreet, who commanded tens of thousands of Confederate soldiers in the war and, you know, uh, was there at all the most significant moments uh, in the Eastern theater with, with Lee. They're working in are sort of side They're They're working side by side in, in New Orleans. And at one stage Badger, uh, when they're involved in this um, multi, the, 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 the battle of Liberty place, which is this white supremacist um, essentially riot uh, in 1874. Uh, and it's almost a pitched battle. Badger accuses Longstreet of, quote, bad generalship, which is just adorable uh, coming from Badger because, you know, Badger was colonel of this tiny little regiment that didn't do all that much. And Longstreet's one of the great, you know, military figures of, of America in the 19th century. So it's just it's funny. It's one of these sort of strange bedfellow situations that they end up um, aligned politically and uh, in, in their in their careers the way they do. He's got a great name. His last name is Badger. How many of you ever met anybody with the last right. name? That uh, another character I wanted to talk about briefly is uh, 
David Rudolph Snelling, who is rather interesting to me. He actually goes after his uncle's cotton gin. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Snelling is another great one. Um, so Snelling is is a, in the first Alabama cavalry, um, and again, another thing that I think I, I turned up in my research that I is is should be I I you know I know I'm sort of biased, but I think this should be more generally known that the first Alabama cavalry, which is this regiment of white unionists from Alabama. Uh, play an extremely prominent role in Sherman's march to the sea. Uh, Sherman deploys them in the vanguard of, of much of their movements, and he, he selects uh, a company of the Albanians to be his headquarters guard, to sort of be his personal sort of headquarters escort. And that company is headed by David Snelling, who's a Georgian. A lot of people don't know that the you know these white Southerners were were, were you know right at the forefront of this the the of Sherman's march to the sea. One of the most sort of infamous, uh, and again also sort of misunderstood uh, episodes of the Civil War. But uh, at one stage, um, they're they're passing. They're near Milledgeville, Georgia, uh, right in the middle of the state. It's uh, one of the former actual capital of Georgia is Milledgeville, and uh, a a former slave uh, recognizes Snelling uh, among Sherman's troops. And there's this sort of funny reunion between them, where the the this enslaved man is, is sort of is a, is amazed and so thankful to find his his former, uh, you know, Snelling as a Union soldier, and Snelling goes to to Sherman and says, you know, my uncle has a plantation six miles away, you know, I can I take some men and go, you know, quote unquote, pay him a visit, and Sherman's like, oh, absolutely. So that so so Snelling and his men ride off to his uncle's plantation. And sack it and, and pointedly destroy the cotton gin. Uh, his father, his uncle, being uh, uh, an avowed secessionist and pro-Confederate, and uh, and they they completely trash his uncle's place because uh, he is finally getting back at him for, um, well, his his Confederate loyalty and his mistreatment in his youth when he was forced to to work in the fields. Uh, so there, so, there were some personal issues going on there. Oh yeah, it was it was a, it was a it was a it was payback for sure. And, you know, Sherman was all, all too happy to, to do it. And I'm sure Snelling really enjoyed it. Um, you know, having that, that the table having turned in, in quite so dramatic a way. So the last figure I wanted to get into, um, was William Frederick Bradford, uh, and his personal story, uh, as well as this relationship with, um, Nathan Bedford Forrest and just the ironies of his personal story. And I guess this will also help us get into uh, a key chapter of the book on the Fort Pillow Massacre. Yeah. So Bradford is is a Tennessean uh, who was born pretty close to where Nathan Bedford Forrest was born. There's there's some indication. There's not a lot of evidence, but there's there's some indication that they would have at least been acquainted with one another. Um, they would have known who uh you know, Forrest would have known who Bradford was, uh, certainly. And he certainly knew by, uh, and I'm talking about before the war, uh, and certainly knew during the war that this guy Bradford was was recruiting and leading unionists in, in Tennessee, something that Forrest found basically incomprehensible uh, and abominable. But uh, yeah, Bradford was uh, one of these Southern Unionists who subscribes to a unionism uh, very similar to most white Americans at the time. He is 
Uh, it's not he's not particularly anti-slavery, but he's willing to to dispense with slavery if that's what is necessary to preserve and, and reconstruct the union. And uh, many people are familiar with the Fort Pillow massacre uh, of 1864. It is probably the single most infamous atrocity of the Civil War, where Nathan Bedford Forrest and his men uh, rather infamously um, slaughtered uh, hundreds of uh, Union soldiers, uh, particularly black Union soldiers who were trying to surrender. Um, they Their fort was overrun. They tried to surrender. Forrest and his men did not accept their surrender and, and started to massacre them uh, and did massacre them. Uh, but what is not particularly well known about, and it became, Fort Pillow became a byword for brutality for years afterwards. It was um, it was it was a, uh, it was recognized as an atrocity immediately at the time. Uh, as soon as word got out, it was not this thing that sort of been retrospectively. Wow, that actually was really awful. People knew at the time that this was uh, maybe anachronistic term, but it was essentially a war crime. You know, killing people who were trying to surrender, and which makes it murder. Um, and what is not particularly well known about that incident. Uh, is that the garrison of Fort Pillow was half uh, USCT, that's United States Colored Troops, Black Union soldiers, and half white Southern Unionists being led by Bradford. And um, what happened at the at the massacre was that uh, Forrest and his men slaughtered the white Southern Unionists alongside the Black Union soldiers um, for what they perceived to be their race betrayal the betrayal of the white race for standing in arms with formerly enslaved people uh, against the Confederacy. And this was, again, this was acknowledged at the time. Now, I, I hasten to add uh, that Forrest, uh, statistically speaking, all the evidence points to Forrest treating the, the black troops more harshly. Now he was, he was, they were, they fewer, uh, there were fewer survivors, fewer wounded, more killed among the black soldiers than the former unionists. But there is plenty of evidence that also that there were white Southern Unionists who were killed and not allowed to surrender uh, because of their visible alliance with black troops. This was essentially in the eyes of Forrest and his men tantamount to leading a, a slave rebellion. Now, have you seen the movie Glory? No, I haven't actually. Oh, okay. Glory is Glory is, in my opinion, and this is maybe the most important thing I'll say on on your podcast today. Glory is the best Civil War movie. Um, there, there, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of decent Civil War movies. Some not so decent. Glory for me is is the best one. I mean, Gone with the Winds, you know, is is a classic, but you know has its own issues. Glory is the best Civil War movie, and in Glory, uh, Glory is about uh, the fifty fourth Massachusetts, which is a regiment of black soldiers led by white. New England officers. And there's a very dramatic moment in the movie where the, the president of the Confederate, the Confederate Congress issued this essentially this law that says white Union officers captured while leading uh, black troops um, will be considered as leading a slave insurrection and are subject to be essentially summarily executed. Um, they, the Confederate government is saying, putting in writing, basically, if you're caught doing this, we have the, we're, we're going to execute you on the spot. And this is essentially what happens to Bradford. Um, this Bradford is captured at Fort Pillow. 
Um, he survives into the night when he is sort of uh, sort of taken away. And then he is, Bradford is executed and his body is displayed on the side of the road as a result of his visible leadership of these black troops. Um, and he becomes, in my opinion, the most prominent uh, example of this retributive uh, action on the part of Confederates that happens during the entire war. Um, he is executed for this crime against the white race against the Confederacy, essentially. And um, I think has been rather forgotten for, for for various reasons, which again, I could get into, but maybe not at that time. But yeah, um, that may have been, I may have been a bit whirlwind, but I hope I covered the Bradford story there. No, I think that was great. And I, I think it was important to cover that particular story because uh, it really illustrates the sort of absolute contempt and and rage that I think Confederates had for what they saw as these traitors. I mean, I mean, it, it, in a sense, I mean, they were betraying the South, right? I mean, they 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 were loyal to the Union. Uh, and Bradford's probably the best example of uh, that sort of um, rage that the South had towards these men who decided to fight on the Union side. Yeah, I don't think it's hard for us to understand what was so um, provocative or provocative seems like too mild of a word, but much so antagonistic about white Southern Unionists to Confederates. They must have been it must have been baffling to them. Uh, it was enraging. It, it was it was in many ways um, was its own atrocity as the Confederates saw it. The idea that you would be leading formerly enslaved people against other whites would have been incomprehensible to most white Southerners in the 19th century. So we've sort of covered there how the South uh, viewed these Unionists. Yeah. How were they viewed by the North? Uh, was there sort of apprehension about them? Uh, there was also probably an understanding, hey, we kind of need these guys. But, but what was the general feeling about uh, Unionists uh, in the eyes of the Northerners? Sure. I mean, I do. I get into this uh, in in my book in more detail than I can probably afford to get into here. But they're, they they assume this incredible symbolic importance uh, to Northerners because all of the most Northerners' hopes for the post-war period for Reconstruction for for the rehabilitation of the Union rests upon the idea that there are still white Southerners out there who can be trusted and who who have always been loyal to the Union. And I think we'll get into this when we start to talk about Reconstruction in a bit. But the northern white northern hopes for the future safety of the Union really hinge on these people. So there's a great deal of northern interest in how in in what they're doing, why they're doing, and and how many of them there are. And many white northerners are actually kind of dismayed at how and rightly basically how few of them there are. But they are um very very important for future post-war plans you know how are we going to rebuild the south well one way will be to give leadership roles to white unionists who have proven their loyalty and have really been put through the ringer in terms of uh in a way that no northerners were uh in terms of of you know what you will sacrifice what you will give up um to, to, to maintain that loyalty. So there's a lot of newspaper coverage and both political parties, the Democrats and the Republicans North, try to position themselves as the friend of the Southern Unionist. Uh, you know, Democrats 
who oppose emancipation say, don't do this. It's unfair to the, the Southern Unionists who have been so loyal to you. You'll lose their support. Whereas Republicans are saying, no, the Southern Unionists are on board with emancipation because they're good Unionists. And they know that, that if that's what it takes to save the country, they'll do it. So both parties are very keen to present themselves as uh, having Southern Unionists interests uh, at heart. Because if you're a Northerner, and a, and, a, and a unionist in the north the the southern unionist is this unambiguous um well you gotta you gotta back them um you know they're they deserve our they deserve our assistance so i i know we're running up against the hour but if we can go a few minutes over i really want to deal with reconstruction uh so you have a, a, a two chapters dealing with uh, reconstruction, both presidential reconstruction and congressional reconstruction. I've heard you say in another interview that in a way, uh, the reconstruction period is the most interesting to you when dealing with these unionists. Uh, since we don't talk about reconstruction that much, what is it about the reconstruction and the unionists' involvement in it uh, that you think is most fascinating? Yeah. And you mentioned this right at the top, um, that I think a lot of people have this compartmentalized understanding of the war and reconstruction and if they 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 see them as these very um distinct uh time periods um they're almost viewed as separate in in some yeah. ways by some people yeah yeah and in some ways you know th there's there's good reasons for this it doesn't you know this is for many people the way that their US history survey is taught you know so they can't necessarily be blamed for paying attention in school if that's the way that their teachers teaching it uh, but i think that that's a, a problematic um uh, distinction because as we know, there's, there's, it's, that's not how history works. Um, you know, we, these things are not compartmentalized. It's the same people um, and with the same motivations, same values living through. And essentially what I think uh, is these unionists can really get to the heart of is that there's, there's, there's in some ways a misconception that the, that the civil war was initiated in order to end slavery. The Confederacy initiated the Civil War to save slavery, as they saw it. The, the, the North responded to that to save the Union. And in order to save the Union, they realized they had to destroy slavery. Now, what Reconstruction, what happens in Reconstruction is that after the war, after slavery is ended and um, it, formerly enslaved people are given the franchise or are given civil rights uh, as a result of the 14th Amendment, Essentially, all of those gains of, of voting rights, of, 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 of black civil rights in the South are rolled back by the end of Reconstruction, um, which, as we know, results in almost 100 years of Jim Crow uh, in the South. And the reason that Reconstruction can be very hard to, to uh, reconcile with what we know about the Civil War is it essentially rolls back what we think was accomplished by the Civil War is almost undone by Reconstruction. If the point of, of the Civil War was to do justice to enslaved people, Reconstruction, when that fails and ends and, and, and the voting rights are taken away and the civil rights are taken away, you're left with this question of, well, what was actually accomplished? And it can create this real ambivalence about the period that it's not this moment of triumph. It's not where America sort of um, redeemed itself and did, did right by enslaved people because uh, at the end of Reconstruction, these, these gains have been have disappeared uh, by and large, you know? Um, 
and what my and it, it, does that make sense? It can be very complicated uh, the, the Reconstruction era, and what my unionists, uh, my unionists, they're mine now. Yeah, uh, just real quick, I was going to say for for people that don't know, I mean, you know, by the time Reconstruction ends, you have you know the the like reigns of terror with the KKK and whatnot. Yeah. So a lot is rolled back in that period in ways that I think a lot of people don't realize. Like the the gains that are made uh, yeah. are sort of just swept away. Uh, and really acts of violence as well as other, um, you know, just political change, et cetera. And that's very difficult for Americans to accept. Th- that's one of the main reasons about th- that. This, this is so, di- this is so, this is in some ways what makes uh, what reconstruction difficult to understand for many people is it, it can be very hard for many Americans to accept that the political violence of the Klan, the intimidation, the, uh, that goes on essentially prevails during reconstruction and gets the North to give up and say, you know what? I don't want to do, we can't do this anymore. You know, um, the, the fact that the Klan and political violence and political intimidation essentially works and essentially succeeds in, in reestablishing or establishing a Jim Crow system in the South is really intolerable to meant to most people's sensibilities of what America is and what America is about. And, and so it's essentially really swept under the rug that this is this is basically what happens. Uh, you know, by the middle of the 1870s, the North is like, I'm tired of this. You know, they, they don't they, the union has been saved. The, the Civil War is over. Slavery in a technical sense is abolished. And for most Northerners, they're done. They're ready to walk away. The fact that black people are having their their rights rolled back and and are experiencing uh, violence and terrorism in the South doesn't really interest most white Northerners in the 19th century. They don't care. And And I I was going to say real quick, I mean, you know, African-Americans that have been emancipated were making some gains in the South in the immediate aftermath of the war. And that's when, you know, when the KKK comes around and all this political violence erupts, you quickly see all of that rolled back. I mean, you know, there's less political power. Uh, I mean, the emancipation is essentially reversed in a lot of ways. Yes, um, it. Uh, there is a brief moment during what is known as radical reconstruction, where con- former, where prominent former Confederates are disenfranchised, and and recently emancipated enslaved people, formerly enslaved people, are enfranchised, and it completely flips the ba- the balance of power in the South. You have uh, black senators, congressmen, governors, judges. Uh, for this brief window from like 1867 to 1876 and 1876 is the very end of it. It's rolled back in earlier in other places. Uh, but yes, there's this brief window of this vision of what the South might have looked like in the 1860s and 70s with full black enfranchisement. But the white South basically freaks out about it because, it, you know, less than 10, you know, 10 years earlier, this entire population had been enslaved. And the, the the violent reaction to it um, essentially prevails and, and and rolls back these these advances, and they have to wait essentially a hundred years for the civil rights movement um, for these things to to be reinstituted. One thing that I think illustrates this really really well: the eighteen seventy five Civil Rights Act, which is trying to stem the tide of the this 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 backlash, this white backlash, and the nineteen sixty four Civil Rights Act signed by Johnson. Are essentially the same bill. Um, you know, they added planes and buses basically to the 64 bill, but the substance of those two civil rights bills are almost identical. 
which tells you again, like that you had 90 years more or less of no progress of, of no, of, of, of civil rights uh, being really stifled. And if I could just get back and I know, uh, I think what I'm going to try to do is bring this back to my unionists. The white unionists of the deep South are integral to defeating radical reconstruction because as much as they oppose the Confederacy, they don't, they're, they're, they're not, um, they are, do not have that same enthusiasm for black civil rights because that was never their goal. Their goal was the preservation of the union. And with that accomplished, the uh, racial solidarity pressure becomes really telling. And many former unionists who had opposed secession and opposed the Confederacy go back to the Democratic Party during Reconstruction and help defeat Republicanism in, in the Deep South because they maintain this racial conservatism that for them is there's no contradiction between their goal of saving the union while also maintaining this racial conservatism that for in, in which they um, had in common with with most white Southerners of the period. The vast. Can you vast. give any? Can you give any um, maybe uh, concrete examples of yes. the, the? The best example of this comes in Alabama, where in 1874, the Democratic the, there's a Republican governor in Alabama still in 1874. They also. Uh, sorry, so there's a Republican governor in Alabama in 1874, and the Democrats make a very deliberate play to win back the votes of, of, of former unionists in the northern part of the state. And the way they do this is they nominate um, George Smith Houston, who had maintained done his best to maintain neutrality during the war, is not an active Confederate, but after the war was a, uh, was a Democrat. So he is not inherently antagonistic to these unions because he hadn't been a Confederate, but he is uh, but he is a white supremacist with whom they could identify. And the Democrats deliberately make a play for these Northern votes and they swing about like 10, 14,000 white votes go from Republican to Democrat in the 1874 election based uh, entirely on this play for the unionist vote. And in, and when Houston wins that election in 74, that signals the end of Reconstruction in Alabama. That's the, the final defeat of Republicans there. Alabama does not elect another Republican in, until 1986 to be governor. And so you see very clearly a conscious play by Democratic political strategists to go after the votes of former unionists, and it succeeds. Just a few more things real briefly, if you have uh, the time. Um, I wanted to ask you about immigrants in regards to, to unionist sentiments versus Confederate sentiments. Uh, Confederate sentiments. Uh, could you speak a little bit to that? What what role does um, you know being an immigrant play in the sentiments of the time? Yeah, um, we have to remember that in the mid-19th century, immigration to the United States was an absolute torrent and was a... a, a massive part, especially of, of United States urban life. Um, so in New Orleans, for example, uh, the biggest city by far uh, in the Confederacy, about four times as big as Charleston is, is New Orleans. Um, there is a very large immigrant population, especially of Irish and German. And uh, 
most immigrants, the vast, vast majority of immigrants are, are sorry, I shouldn't maybe say it quite so strongly, but a solid majority of unionists are, of, of immigrants are unionists because they, more than maybe native born Americans, have a sense of the preciousness of the union, have made the conscious choice to move to the United States because of the, as I said, mentioned before, the political, economic, religious freedoms that the union offers. And so um, they have a more, they, they take it less for granted, essentially. Many, many, many immigrants in the mid-19th century are directly, direct political refugees from the, from the 1848 revolutions, especially in Germany. Um, liberals uh, who were sort of uh, hounded out of the country uh, after their their liberal constitutional movement was defeated. Uh, and many, many uh, Germans, the 48ers, moved to the United States, uh, and they are much more likely to be unionists um, than Native American-born counterparts. Because and I, this- I was going to say real quick, too, I mean, they were also facing their own issues in the U.S. at the time, right? I mean, because you have the nativists, uh, the, the know-nothingism sort of followers that are attacking them pretty hard. Oh, massively, yeah. And the know-nothing party has a substantial following in New Orleans because of the large immigrant population. Uh, yeah, the know-nothing party is essentially the entirety of that party, the 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 American party, is, is an anti-immigrant movement because of the degree of visibility and the undeniable... Um, current of, of of immigration that was going on in the United States was alarming to many white uh, native-born Americans. So yeah, they very much have their own uh, anti-immigrant prejudices uh, to deal with. Um, oh, without a doubt. So then before closing out here, uh, with regards to something you mentioned earlier, uh, we don't really hear much about the, the Southern white unionists, much less uh, what you're covering, which is these white unionists from the deep South. Uh, what's the reasons for that? And how can we maybe in a way tie that back to reconstruction? Because I get the feeling that one of the reasons, at least we don't hear about this much is because you have uh, a lot of these, you know, white unionists from the deep South. Uh, they're for the union, but after that's over and reconstruction's happening, uh, they're like, well, you know, I'm not too, uh, too happy with like how 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 we're emancipating these former slaves, and in a way, it's almost like uh, I, I don't want to say they regret supporting the union, uh, but they don't get what they want out of it necessarily, um, or things don't don't exactly reconstruction isn't exactly what they were looking for. Uh, so, in a way, they almost uh, brush it to the side that they were on the side of the union. Yeah, I think that, that that's that's basically right. There's very little enthusiasm for emancipation among former unionists in the Deep South, except as it was uh, a means to end the war. But in and of itself, as a cause, it's emancipation, black civil rights is not something that they're interested in as the end itself, as the thing that was what they were fighting for. So as... And as we know, emancipation and union victory are completely inextricable in our minds to the, to, to 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 most people in America now, and and that's not wrong because, you know, that is the most important result of the war by far, uh, is is emancipation. But it can be very hard for us now to understand how you could have this unionism shorn of emancipationism. How you how they can be distinct causes. How one could exist without the other. 
And what my what these unionists show, I think, very clearly is that you can have a unionism that doesn't have any real enthusiasm for emancipation. And as emancipation becomes more and more inextricably linked with the memory of union victory and union service, white Southerners who had no uh, had no enthusiasm for emancipation have less and less to celebrate about their unionist uh, past. They, in many ways, I find actually allowed that memory to to be forgotten because they were so unenthusiastic, so had so little to set, found so little to celebrate about emancipation, black rights, these things that were accomplished by their union service. Uh, they would have been very proud and were very proud to have helped save the union, but to have emancipated the slaves, to to have given uh, black people the vote was not something that they wanted to celebrate. And because they didn't want to celebrate it, they were, they allowed the memory of that, of having helped affect that to fade away. So closing out here, uh, one of the things I find interesting about these uh, white unionists is, you know, the, I think it's hard for modern people to wrap their head around this phenomena because on one hand, you know, I look at them and I'm thinking to myself, okay, they they dislike the land aristocracy or the plantation aristocracy. I I can sort of relate to that, right? I mean, I mean that seems, um, you know, reasonable. Uh, at the same time, uh, they're not, ex- I mean, they're, they're not exactly, um, they're against the emancipation. They're uh, against our sort of values when it comes to issues related to race. Uh, and I think maybe that also plays a factor in why they're sort of forgotten um, because it's, it's hard to wrap our head around them. Uh, th- there's aspects we can find sympathetic of them and other aspects that we can find horrifying. Uh, putting all that aside, though, in a way, um, our, our sympathies or antipathies towards these uh, white unionists what is the importance of knowing their story? Why, why maybe should we remember them? Well, I, I, what you just said, I think, is one is one good reason that it, it helps remind us once again that the Civil War was not the racists versus the non-racists. That's that's a, a, a gross oversimplification that I think one can succumb to when you talk about the Confederacy versus the Union. It was not uh, those who were for slavery versus those who were against slavery. It was... It was it more like those who were for the union against those who were for slavery, if that makes sense. It, it just complicates things. And I think anytime you have a situation where you can help uh, reiterate the complicated nature of the past, that these things do not um, align neatly to our current political um, divides, um, I think that is very useful. Um, and I think the bottom line is that these these white unionists in the deep south made a very uh brave bold uh risky choice to support the union it would have been much easier to go the other way for them um so there is an element of they did what they thought was right because it was right um but not for exactly the reasons that we might want them to have done it supporting the union is being on the right side of history in, in the 19th century, to use a, a sort of loaded phrase and, and a, a term that you could discuss. But you were the good guys. The Confederacy wanted to create a country founded on the perpetuation of racial slavery, and these unionists fought against that. But they didn't necessarily fight against that because of uh, their 
stance against racism, against uh, against racial slavery. And they did it because they supported the concept of union, which was so important in the 19th century, which we have lost track of now, but without understanding which, we can't understand the subsequent course of American history. You know, um, if you don't understand why the union was in and of itself their cause and why emancipation and civil rights were separate, then the rest, then, then why did a hundred years pass between reconstruction and civil rights? Why, why was there allowed to be this formation of a Jim Crow South? Um, it helps speak to that complexity and that untidiness uh, that I think is so important when we think about history. Real quick as well, because you said it was sort of brave for them to support the union. Uh, in case listeners haven't necessarily gotten the risks involved with being a Southerner that supported the union, uh, could you briefly get into that? I mean, I think they even had a name, uh, like a pejorative. I think they called them scalawags, right? The, um... oh, yeah. uh, a scalawag. So when we talk about Reconstruction, um, there were three elements of the Republican coalition in the South, those opposed to the Democrats who were made up almost entirely, uh, not enti- not 100% as George Smith Houston shows, but almost entirely of former Confederates who were re- socially conservative, retrenching. And the Republicans were made up of the formerly enslaved people, freedmen, as they used to be and, and are still often called in the literature, carpetbaggers, and a carpetbagger is somebody, a northern transplant to the South after the war, and scalawag. And a scalawag is a native white Southerner who supports the Republican Party. And one of the ways that this is really telling and and tells, I think, in many ways more than we can sometimes immediately pick up on, carpetbagger and scalawag are pejorative terms. They are both terms used by conservative white Southerners to disparage Northern transplants to the South who voted Republican and native and Scalawags who were native white Southerners who voted Republican. They're pejorative terms. They're insults. And yet they're still the only language we have to describe these people. And so you have an element of this is, this is who's writing history and how they're writing it really, really matters because these terms are, are put downs. And yet we're talking about, and that's still what we are forced to use, the vocabulary we are forced to use. A scalawag is, a, everybody knows a scalawag is, is, a, is a bad person. And it's, it's, it's the, the, these people are painted as, as, as nefarious or bad. All they are is they're voting Republican and they're from the South. Um, and that's sort of um, a, an interesting thing for us to contemplate is, is the vocabulary that we're, that we're forced to use to describe things. And, and I was going to say too, beyond like using pejoratives like scalawag, uh, you know, the, these Southern white unionists, I mean, we, we often think about the Civil War as, uh, you know, brother fighting brother, right? Um, but, you know, these unionists face their own uh, sort of brother versus brother situation uh, in the South, right? I mean, it, it's sort of like a, a, an interesting conflict between Southerners where you had a lot of these unionists uh, saying, you know, this is shut my mouth time, even though I, I want to stay in the union. There were real social ramifications is what I'm getting at uh, for being a Southern unionist, correct? Absolutely correct. Uh, and you bring up a very, one of the one of the great, everybody knows that brother versus brother uh, framing, right? And, and yet it's another thing that we don't necessarily stop to think about all the time. Brother versus brother was not happening in Massachusetts. 
Brother vs. Brother was not happening in 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 New York. Brother vs. Brother is only happening in the in the South, uh, basically, you know, Kentucky, Missouri, maybe, but but in places like Alabama or Louisiana. I mentioned earlier Henry Ballard Tolliver, Louisiana, joined the first Louisiana Cavalry. And I also mentioned his brother, John Quincy Adams Tolliver. John Quincy Adams Tolliver was a Confederate. And he and his brother, you have, I, that's an example right there. John Tolliver, Henry Tolliver, one was a Unionist, one was a Confederate, fought on opposite sides in the Civil War. They were brothers. And that kind of thing really only happens in the South. And that's a great example of where, like, brother versus brother is, is that phrase that so many people know. And yet when you stop to think about it, 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 it has to mean Southern Unionist. Did these sort of unionists, did they face like ostracization and whatnot, even like before the war even started, I'm assuming, you know, they faced some level of ostracization from their communities as well. Well, uh, yeah, it, um, certainly they were those they were because they were union, not because they were unionists, but the, the factors that led them to become unionists um, contributed to their social marginalization. And, and they had been socially marginal before the war. Those things are not unrelated in the secession winter and right after the, the end of the war uh, and during Johnson's administration, they really get marginalized and harassed. And, um, and that's one of the things that uh, makes them union, you know, really cements their unionism in some ways. Well, Clayton Butler, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views to discuss your book, True Blue, White Unionist in the Deep South during the Civil War Reconstruction. I'm holding up the book right now for people watching the video version of this. And uh, how can my listeners get a copy of the book? And what do you hope they get out of the conversation we've been having for the past, I, I guess, uh, hour and 20 minutes or so? Yeah, uh, you can get a, a copy of the book uh, anywhere books are sold, as the expression goes. Um, you can get it on Amazon. It's an LSU Press book, so you can also uh, get it through uh, LSU Press's website. But um, yeah, if you know Amazon uh, will work. Um Hopefully you're, you check out your local library if, if you're inclined. And what I hope you get out of it, um, you know, <laughs> there I, I, I really am appreciative of the opportunity to speak about um, these things and, and my research and my writing. But um, there's a lot more in the book that I wasn't able to properly maybe articulate here, which didn't make uh, didn't have time to talk about, uh, didn't maybe say as clearly as, as I might have liked. So um, I would encourage you to, to read the book if you have questions about anything I said. Um, you can also, uh, I'm happy to, you know, my contact information if you'd like. Um, but uh, yeah, I would say, you know, my book um, has an index and it has, uh, you know, more references for, for, for those who might be interested in what we, we were talking about and more clarification and, and citations. Uh, so you can do your own research uh, as well. And if people want to contact you, I know you have Twitter, uh, if you want to give out your Twitter. Yeah, I do have Twitter. Um, I have an old, it's, uh, my handle is at cybersmith722. It's because when I was, uh, when I was growing up, uh, the, the local computer sort of internet cafe in my mall where I grew up was called Cybersmith. And so I always loved that. But it's, yeah, at cyber, S-M-I-T-H, S-722. And I'd be very happy to get any questions you might have. And thank you again, Clayton J. Butler, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you. 
Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Clayton J. Butler and that you'll check out his book, True Blue, White Unionists in the Deep South During the Civil War and Reconstruction. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.